It's the Victorian Variety Show. It was thus rather the exacting nature of my aspirations than any particular degradation in my faults that made me what I was. And with even a deeper trench than in the majority of men, severed in me those provinces of good and ill which divide and compound man's dual nature. In this case, I was driven to reflect deeply and inveterately on that hard law of life, which lies at the root of religion and is one of the most plentiful springs of distress. Though so profound a double dealer, I was in no sense a hypocrite. Both sides of me were in dead earnest. I was no more myself when I laid aside restraint and plunged in shame than when I labored in the eye of day at the furtherance of knowledge or the relief of sorrow and suffering. And it chanced that the direction of my scientific studies which led wholly toward the mystic and the transcendental, reacted and shed a strong light on this consciousness of the perennial war among my members. With every day, and from both sides of my intelligence, the moral and the intellectual, I thus drew steadily nearer to that truth, by whose partial discovery I have been doomed to such a dreadful shipwreck that man is not truly one, but truly two. This is the Victorian Variety Show. My name is Marissa, and the excerpt I just read is from Robert Louis Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which was first published in 1886. I chose this passage because it speaks to a theme that we've seen pretty much since ancient times, the duality of man. And I think it's good for us every now and then to ask ourselves why we see this theme so much in texts throughout history, whether it's in a novella like Stevenson's or the writings of Plato. One thing I see a lot is people tending to define themselves with rather narrow labels. For example, I notice pretty often on social media that people tend to position themselves as one thing, such as writer or artist or gamer or podcaster. And the vast majority of the content they post tends to reflect that narrow category. And I sometimes even see someone in the hashtag writing community on Twitter say that they're losing followers because they don't only tweet about their latest work in progress or at least writing related topics. And I get it. Not the unfollowing people who write about topics other than writing, but in this day and age, it's easy to feel pressure to quote unquote build our personal brands and to specialize because that way You can be seen as an expert in your field. But at the same time, I find that really frustrating because there's so much more to us than that single label many of us hide behind. 
some of which is good, some of which is bad. And these nuances within our nature spend a lot of time battling it out. And while that produces results too messy to include in, say, a LinkedIn profile, it's ultimately what makes us so interesting as humans. Philosophers, writers, psychologists, and others throughout the ages have understood that we're complex beings. And they've come up with some clever theories about why we're so complex. The idea of discussing one of these theories every now and then on this podcast appeals to me because, and this is another theme that I've seen tying together several topics I've done episodes on, people living during the Victorian era often sought out new approaches to spirituality, science, and mourning rituals, for example, due to the rapid socioeconomic changes that were taking place. But also, some of the theories that were popular during the Victorian era went on to inspire modern-day practices in some way, as did the topic I'm focusing on in this episode, phrenology. According to the Victorian era website, the term phrenology is composed of two Greek words, phren, which means mind, and logos, which means knowledge. Victorian era defines phrenology as a, quote, pseudoscience primarily focused on measurements of the human skull. Its basis is the concept that the brain is the organ of the mind, and so certain brain areas have localized specific functions or modules, end quote. Basically, phrenologists believed they could determine how character traits corresponded with specific areas of the brain that handle those traits by measuring bumps and indentations in people's heads. If you type phrenology into Google or Bing, you'll see images of a profile of a person's head with different qualities mapped out in certain areas. The one I looked at in preparing for this episode has individuality across the bridge of the nose and veneration and benevolence at the top of the head and alimentiveness, which has to do with how we eat, in front of the right ear. I'll put it on my Twitter page when I post this episode, but you get the idea. The functions of these qualities that constitute our characters were viewed by phrenologists as residing, if you will, in certain areas of the brain. Although phrenology was popular during the Victorian era, it's important to understand that its development began in the late 18th century with the work of the German neuroanatomist and physiologist Franz Joseph Gall. As a medical student in the late 1700s, Gall began to notice that classmates with certain features seem to be more skilled in certain areas. For example, as Jennifer Walker Journey explains in an article called Why Was Phrenology All the Rage in Victorian Times, someone with a wider forehead and larger eyes seemed to Gall better at memorizing longer passages. I guess he thought that a person with these features could take in more information and have more space in their brain to process it. Observations like these led Gall to eventually measure people's heads, 
sometimes by laying his hands on the bumps and ridges or actually measuring them with instruments like tape measures and calipers and to develop a system of ideas that identified the brain as the organ of the mind, which consists of many separate, distinct behaviors and traits, which Gall referred to as quote-unquote faculties. Specifically, Gall identified 27 of these faculties, although later phrenologists would identify even more. But because Gall saw all these faculties as independent of each other, he believed each one occupied a unique location in the brain, and that, as a result, a brain's power was determined by its size. Furthermore, he believed the brain's size determined its shape, and that since that shape corresponds to measures of the skull, the skull can be considered an accurate model of human psychological abilities, as well as the intellectual and mental qualities that make up someone's personality. In an article called Franz Joseph Gall and the Origins of Phrenology, Stanley Finger explains that although he was often portrayed as, quote, a discredited buffoon, end quote, Gall was actually a, quote, serious physician scientist who strove to answer timely questions about the mind, brain, and behavior. In many ways, a remarkable thinker and researcher, many of his seminal ideas would become tenets of the modern behavioral and neurosciences." End quote. Again, as I discussed in my episode on taphophobia, also known as the fear of being buried alive, some weeks back, the modern tendency seems to be to look back at theories like Gaul's and immediately try to debunk them. But in doing so, we fail to acknowledge how much less was known about these phenomena in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. And that as a result, these theories were often seen as revolutionary at the time. Or, if not revolutionary, they at least made sense to many people at the time. So it's no surprise that Gall gained followers, such as Johann Christoph Spurzheim, who worked with Gall for some time and eventually began giving lectures on tours he took through Europe and America, in which he spread the word about phrenology to individuals like Scottish lawyer George Combe, who founded the Edinburgh Phrenological Society in 1820, and in the 1830s, Orson Squire Fowler and Lorenzo Niles Fowler, two American brothers who went on to conduct lecture tours of their own and established the Phrenological Museum in Philadelphia in 1838. As we saw with mesmerism, these lectures were generally well attended by the public, many of whom were eager to participate in phrenological demonstrations. As Walker Journey points out, some people actually style their hair in ways that would display the bumps in their heads. However, phrenology appealed to people for more than its entertainment value. Walker Journey notes that Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, among others, had their children's heads read by phrenologists, possibly to help them determine their strengths and weaknesses. 
And although it seems to me that royal children tend to be pretty well off financially, regardless of how talented they are or aren't, it became common for employers to require prospective employees to furnish character references from local phrenologists, especially in the 1820s to the 1840s. It was believed that these references would not only attest to how hard prospective employees worked and how trustworthy they were, but also to indicate how psychologically fit the employee was for a position in general. In addition, in the Victorian phrenology craze, James Poskett explains that it was common for bachelors to turn to phrenologists for assistance in choosing wives, measuring qualities such as phyloprogenitiveness, which was associated with the amount of affection a woman would supposedly have for her children, and amativeness or amativeness, which corresponded with sexual desire. And some of you may be rolling your eyes at this, but I did some research and found phrenological manuals geared toward women as well. For example, Vaught's Practical Character Reader from 1902 warned women that a quote-unquote unreliable husband is, quote, very weak in conjugality and parental love and exceedingly strong in amativeness, end quote. And vital magnetism is housed at the back of the head. So a man whose skull curves upward in the back would have been portrayed as deficient in this quality in a manual like this. Phrenology's use in association with research on crime and criminal reform is also well documented. In Heads for Murder, the Victorian pseudoscience of phrenology, Keith Souter points out that phrenologists often conducted their research on the heads of executed criminals and explains that William Calcraft supplemented his income as a hangman by selling pieces of the rope he used and is also believed to have allowed phrenologists to make casts of his victims' heads. Phrenologists would measure the victims' heads to determine their capacity for qualities such as acquisitiveness, which was located just above the ear and corresponded with the desire to steal, for example. It's important to note here that this type of research was often conducted with the goal of criminal reform. As Poskett explains, phrenology was, quote, part of a broader change in attitudes toward crime, end quote, during the Victorian era, with many viewing physical punishment as unproductive and outdated. Some even believed inmates would be able to practice more self-control if they had a better understanding of how their brains operated. This idea of putting phrenology in the hands of the, what you might call, less fortunate was also seen in what Poskett describes as phrenology's power to start revolutions, such as that of German journal editor Gustav von Struve, who, in 1848, argued that phrenology demonstrated that all men and women were subjected to the same natural laws, and that, as a result, rulers didn't have the right to tell their constituents what to do. However, as Poskett also notes, 
phrenology's association with colonialism and racism is also well documented. Beginning in Calcutta, India in the 1820s, it was common for students to have their heads measured with calipers at school every morning. For example, after six months, the phrenologist George Murray Patterson noted that areas of the front of the head which were associated with the intellect had, as he put it, improved. Studies such as these led to disturbing, but unfortunately widespread colonial beliefs that the Indians who were subject to British rule were quote unquote weak-minded, but could become more quote unquote civilized once exposed to British education. In America, Phrenology was famously used to justify the treatment of Africans and Native Americans in the 19th century. In Phrenology and Scientific Racism in the 19th Century, Kay Titowski writes that a physician from Kentucky named Charles Caldwell gave lectures in the 1830s and 40s, in which he claimed that the shape of the skulls of Africans indicated how quote-unquote tameable they were, which, he argued, correlated with their need to, quote, have a master, end quote. In a similar vein, physiologists such as Samuel Morton argued that, based on the Native American skulls that were studied, Native Americans were, quote-unquote, inferior to white men in their intellectual abilities and averse to, quote-unquote, progress. Widespread support of these findings helped to justify the land removal policies of Andrew Jackson and encouraged European Americans to move westward and settle land that had belonged to Native Americans for generations. So phrenology is notable, I think, because it encouraged people during the Victorian era to take a greater and often more proactive interest in how the mind works. However, I also think it's easy to see how easily it could be used for more nefarious purposes. For the most part, phrenology could be practiced by almost anyone, so many of its adherents had little to no medical training. According to John Van Wy in the History of Phrenology, phrenologists, quote, claimed to have access to special knowledge about people, end quote. And as a result, visits to phrenologists were often seen as similar to visits to astrologers or psychics. In fact, Walker Journey's article points out that by the 1930s, phrenology was, quote, lumped with astrology, numerology, and palmistry, end quote. So you might see a phrenologist booth sitting beside that of a tarot card reader at the local carnival. Also, according to Walker Journey, the fact that phrenologists not only disagreed on the number of faculties, but also on where they were located, detracted from its credibility. In addition, by the mid-1800s, scientists were gaining a better understanding of the brain such as Marie-Jean-Pierre Florence, a French physician who found that the brain worked as one unit, so that if a part of the brain was damaged, its function can often be performed by another part of the brain. Still, 
I think we can see Gall's theories regarding specific functions in localized areas of the brain is still very much with us in some ways. To give an example from my own experience watching ADHD videos on YouTube, I think of the role the brain's prefrontal cortex plays in things like working memory, impulse control, and hyperfocus. So although I'd agree that phrenology is a pseudoscience that's been used to justify the mistreatment of millions of people and genuinely dangerous political philosophies, I also think it's important to look at where it came from and why so many people found it so fascinating. So that's my introduction to phrenology and how it was perceived and used during the Victorian era. And I would love to know what you think. Please feel free to email me at thevictorianvarietyshow at gmail.com. Although, unfortunately, I'm starting to get a lot of spam emails there, some of which are addressed Dear Victoria and are trying to sell me stuff I don't need. It's amusing, but also frustrating. But I am still checking my emails, so it'd be so nice to see one I actually asked for. But you can also send me a voice message if you'd like using the link in the show description. And you can follow me on Twitter at, at VictorianVariety1. As I mentioned, I'm going to be posting some of the pictures I found in my research on this topic. So I would definitely encourage you, if you're interested, to go check them out. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash marissadf13. And finally, I would really appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, as it'll help a lot more people find out about this show. Thanks so much for listening. The support and feedback I've been getting on this show has been amazing, and I'm grateful for all of you. It makes me really eager to do my shows, but also encourages me to thoroughly research my topics, because I want to give you the best information I can find in case you decide to explore any of these topics further in the future, and I hope you do. I'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. But in the meantime, I'm going to leave you with an excerpt from Charlotte Bronte's 1853 novel, Villette, in which I think we can pretty clearly see the influence of phrenology and the idea that the faculties of the brain that Gall spoke of were independent of and occasionally at odds with each other. These struggles with the natural character, the strong native bent of the heart, may seem futile and fruitless, but in the end, they do good. They tend, however slightly, to give the actions, the conduct, that turn which reason approves, and which feeling, perhaps, too often opposes. They certainly make a difference in the general tenor of a life and enable it to be better regulated, more equable, quieter on the surface, and it is on the surface only the common gaze will fall. As to what lies below, leave that with God. Man, your equal, weak as you, and not fit to be your judge, may be shut out thence 
take it to your maker. Show him the secrets of the spirit he gave. Ask him how you are to bear the pains he has appointed. Kneel in his presence and pray with faith for light in darkness, for strength in piteous weakness, for patience in extreme need.